Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm here to keep you company for the next hour as we delve into the world of business and politics here in Ireland and beyond. Now on today's show we're going to be tackling some of the pressing issues on the home front with housing remaining a major concern for everyone here in Ireland but most particularly for the government. So we're going to explore how the state might be changing their tune when it comes to working hand in hand with developers to meet those very ambitious housing targets. Joining us for this discussion will be Linda Daly from the Sunday Times. And brace yourself, Donald Trump is back in the dock again and this time it could be very serious. Joe Miller of the Financial Times in New York is going to take us through this week's events and give us a rundown on what might happen next. And lastly, we'll cast our eyes to the ever-evolving Chinese economy. Could it be facing challenges and in need of a stimulus package? Well, to shed some light on that crucial topic, we've got the China Economy Editor at Bloomberg, James Major, joining me to examine. So stay tuned for more conversations that count here on News Talk, and you can contact the show by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, first up today, former US President Donald Trump finds himself at the centre of a web of legal battles, grappling with allegations surrounding his conduct, his handling of classified documents and events surrounding the 2020 presidential election campaign. Well, examining and uncovering the multiple cases that now surround Donald Trump, I'm delighted to welcome back Joe Miller, who is the US legal correspondent for the Financial Times. Joe, welcome back to Taking Stock. Great to be back with you, Mandy. It's a great time to be the legal correspondent for the Financial Times, I'd imagine. Last Christmas, you spent a lot of time explaining to us all of the four cases uh, that Donald Trump was involved in. And then you had a ringside seat in the courtroom when Donald Trump was arraigned in New York and you spoke to us after you left the courtroom. I guess we're on battle number three of those cases now. But So let's kick off here and just try and put this case that he is now facing in context. Uh, What are we talking about now and how significant is this case in Donald Trump's repertoire of legal quagmire? Potentially incredibly uh, significant, Mandy. You're right. The last time we spoke, we were um, digesting the circus that uh, was the Manhattan DA's um, charge, uh, criminal charges against Donald Trump over the alleged hush money uh, payments to porn star uh, Stormy Daniels in the run up to the 2016 election. I think it's fair to say that those charges have paled into relative insignificance uh, compared to what's happened since. Of course, we've had those charges brought by. Uh, the special counsel in Washington, Jack Smith, uh, against Donald Trump, uh, criminal charges related to the retention of classified documents. And few of us can forget the pictures that came along with uh, that uh, indictment, in, including um, boxes of classified documents allegedly stashed in, in one of Donald Trump's bathrooms. Um, but these potential charges um, that could be coming any day now, um, these could be, you know, this could be the final, um, you know, de- death knell really for, for Donald Trump's uh, political future. Um, and um, it's, it's not clear entirely what will be in it, but um, we do know, or at least Donald Trump claims to have received 
a letter um, from um, Special Counsel Jack Smith earlier uh, this week telling him that he's the target of this criminal investigation, which usually means that a charge is imminent. Uh, and there's a lot of reporting out there that uh, essentially, um, without getting too deep into the legal weeds, it looks like Jack Smith is throwing the book at Donald Trump when it comes to his alleged interference in the results in um, certifying the results of uh, the the uh, twenty uh, twenty election, which obviously culminated in that riot on on Capitol Hill, um, and it, so what we're seeing really is a really emboldened Department of Justice having already got um, a, a fairly strong case by all accounts against Donald Trump on the classified documents. Now getting round to perhaps the most high profile charge that we'll get against Donald Trump, and thinking. We've got him on a number of different statutes. Mm. So this one is about the um, riots on Capitol Hill on the 6th of January, the insurrection. Is that right? That's correct. Or or at least that's what we're led to believe Mm. by um, Donald Trump's social media and by uh, some of things his lawyers have said in the last few days. Uh, The way the system works here is that before uh, the government can bring a charge against any individual, not just a former president, uh, a grand jury sits. And that's essentially a very similar process to a jury in a trial, except it's entirely behind closed closed doors. And what happens is the government makes their case to the grand jury saying, this this is the evidence we have. And do we have credible cause to go ahead and charge? And then the jury, the grand jury will vote. And when the grand jury votes for a, a charge to go ahead, then you get an indictment. Now, all of this usually happens uh, completely behind closed doors. But when a target in a, a particular investigation um, is uh, not called to, to testify or does not request to testify um, in the grand jury process, um, then the, the Department of Justice usually notifies them, uh, give, giving them a reasonable amount of time to uh, come and give them basically a last chance to come and, and testify in their own uh, defense, so to speak, before the grand jury. Um, so that's probably what this letter is about, which is why there's all of this frenzy uh, you know, about this being incredibly imminent, because that's the playbook that the Department of Justice uses. Um, but what's interesting really are the statutes involved in um, the uh, this potential indictment. Uh, so there are, uh, not without wishing to get into the weeds of it, there's a, a witness tampering statute that we believe is referenced in the letter. This is a statute that's been used to prosecute other rioters on January 6th uh, in the Capitol. Um, that basically, uh, it's a provision that criminalizes the obstruction of, a, of an official proceeding, and uh, prosecutors are claiming that the uh, you know uh, certification of the votes that was interrupted, that was an official proceeding. Um, and uh, there's a conspiracy charge we expect, which is a conspiracy to, to commit an offense uh, against or to fraud the United States, which is a very broad statute. And again, that's been used uh, in, in other cases related to overturning or the uh, attempt to overturn the, the 2020 election. What's really, really interesting is we believe reportedly that there might be a civil rights statute that's relied upon here. And this is a civil rights stra- statute that, that basically goes back to the Reconstruction era uh, in, in the US. It's a civil rights law. It was originally used to stop the Ku Klux Klan from interfering with the voting rights of uh, of minorities and, and others. Um, and uh, it's very, very rare. I mean, people who've been following you know, this kind of litigation for, for a long, long time, um, you know, haven't seen this being used in, in a case like this 
perhaps ever. Um, and I think what, and again, you know, this is all speculation at this point, but what it really does point to is that Jack Smith and the Department of Justice are really emboldened now. And mm. they think that not only can they get Donald Trump, but they can get him, you know, in several different ways. Wow, that is really interesting. And I suppose we're all speaking at a bit of a disadvantage at the moment because it is speculative, as you say. But they have actually prosecuted other people for their role and the role that various other people have played in this in the riots of January the 6th. Do you see that the role that Donald Trump played in it will be that he will be painted as the person who sort of organised and promoted it so uh, that he's ultimately getting a lot more burden on his shoulders, if you like, than anybody else who's been prosecuted for this as the person who not only uh, could have stopped it, but actually encouraged it. I think we can definitely expect that, Mandy, but I'll tell you why, because you might remember the end of last year, we probably alluded to this uh, when, when we spoke, um, that there's already been a committee, a January 6th, a January 6th committee um, on Capitol Hill that sat and delivered and heard testimony from almost all of the people involved in those uh, events. It sat for months and months and months, and then it came up with this massive report at the end of last year. Um, and it was really uh, essentially a slam dunk when they delivered this report, which they handed over to the Department of Justice, uh, recommending that criminal charges come because all of the legwork had been done. And, you know, I won't sort of uh, go through all of the details of this eight chapter report, but I just read you some of the chapter titles was mm. quote unquote I just want to find 11,780 votes that's a quote from uh, Donald Trump quote unquote just call it corrupt and leave the rest to me uh, quote unquote a coup in search of a legal theory uh, quote unquote be there will be wild <laughs> and so you see kind of the, the case that they're building is uh, not just that Donald Trump was involved in this but he was essentially the ringleader and he intended um, to uh, directly frustrate the democratic process uh, in in America, and of course, um, prompted that riot uh, in which in which people died. Yeah, and of course, there there is one remaining case after this one, um, which we'll get into it another day. But what I wanted to ask you a question about um, Joe: the difference between the federal versus state cases, and how if Donald Trump managed to become president again, which of these cases could he? effectively overturn any decision in relation to himself and is there one that he can't actually overturn that is more important? This is a big question and I must say the, the answer to that is somewhat unclear because we are in unprecedented territory. I mean there has never been a criminal charge against a, a former US president at all and now we have um, state charges as I mentioned the Manhattan DA, we have federal charges, the classified documents case and probably um, federal charges over January 6th. Now um, it is clear that for example if Donald Trump was convicted in the uh, criminal case in Manhattan that wouldn't prevent him from um, standing for uh, president and perhaps even uh, winning office. Um, there is actually nothing to stop someone who has um, been criminally convicted um, um, being president. Uh, what there might be, and many lawyers on the on the so-called left are, have been looking into this ever since, essentially, Donald Trump announced um, that he was going to run again. Um, there is a provision in the Constitution that stops insurrectionists from running from office, or perhaps could be wielded to stop insurrectionists mm. from running for office. And so it really depends what's in this January 6th case, and of course, if it is successful 
successful. Um, but I think what will happen is as soon as we'll see this, this case is filed, as soon as the indictment comes out, you will see these uh, very well-funded legal activists around the country uh, trying to make the case that Donald Trump is now ineligible uh, to stand as a, as a candidate. Um, whether or not that will be successful, again, I think you know, very few people can point to, uh, you know, definitively to to any uh, legal statute that will tell us for mm. sure whether that could be uh, uh, successfully argued. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock, and I'm talking to Joe Miller, who's the US legal correspondent for the Financial Times. Um, Joe, just turning to the other side of this, uh, the politics of it all for, for a moment, if I can. Um, the previous two cases, let's call them the hush money case and the classified documents case. How have they or have they at all affected his campaign uh, to become the Republican nominee for the next presidential uh, race? Uh, if at all, um, they seem to have uh, affected it on the upside in that um, Donald Trump is still by far uh, the front runner in the for the Republican nomination uh, from, for president. Uh, his poll numbers uh, seem to get a boost every single time uh, legal action or potential legal action uh, hits the hits the news. Uh, he, of course, uh, uses these um, indictments and these actions against him to claim that there's a, a massive witch hunt orchestrated by Joe Biden's uh, White House, which he claims is instructing the Department of Justice to go after a, a uh, political rival. Um, and uh, these talking points, which he has successfully rolled out on his social media platform, uh, Truth Social, uh, they are more or less being echoed by Republicans uh, across the spectrum by his um, uh, by many of his rivals for the Republican uh, nomination too, with a few notable exceptions, such as the former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, who's, mm. who said that, you know, Donald Trump is not qualified to, to run for office. Uh, he's kind of, you know, pitching himself to the left of the of the uh, the, uh, the Republican Party or whatever's left of the kind of mainstream re- Republicans, so-called mainstream Republicans, but I think what's really out, you know, what stands out about the response to to this is it's been overwhelmingly. Uh, positive for him uh, among Republican voters and uh, indeed among the party itself. Mm. Just looking at the, some recent figures that were released on the campaign um, funding side of things in, in the US, Donald Trump has raised something like 35 million in the first half of the year. And I, I think DeSantis wasn't doing too badly in that he'd, he'd raised 20 million. But the problem for DeSantis is that because Donald Trump is eating up all the oxygen um, in terms of the media coverage, uh, you know, DeSantis has to use all of his campaign money to actually get any traction in the media. So there's a big political call here, or is there a big political call here for the judicial system? When you think of it, the decisions that they make around these four cases are actually having an effect on the campaign already by giving him oxygen and giving him that opponent that he has always needed uh, to present himself as the alt-system candidate, if you like. I think that's right. I think this is essentially, if you ask people around him, the dream scenario for uh, for Donald Trump. This is what he wants. Uh, he wants to be able to claim that he's the target of a witch hunt. Uh, he wants to be able to to claim that he's fighting against the odds, um, and is more or less a repeat of the narrative that uh, he had in in the run up to the 2016 election that he is the outsider. You know, he's the one who will speak the truth to power, etc. Uh, and it's made it very, very difficult for Ron DeSantis to essentially 
essentially differentiate himself. And we've seen that, as you say, in, in the uh, amount of fundraising. Uh, I think that uh, DeSantis brought in something like uh, $20 million in, in the second quarter of this year. Um, but only, uh, I think, uh, something like 15% of his donations are from, from small donors, which kind of points to the fact that he really isn't animating the base in the mm. same way that Donald Trump is, is able to do. And finally, Joe, if I could ask you that last case that you mentioned there, uh, the one in Georgia, um, could you just give us an overview of of what you think or when you think something might happen on that front? Is there any timetable out there? If I knew, Mandy, I'd be splashing it on the front page of the Financial (laughs) Times, I assure you. Um, We're told something like uh, within the next month. um, We know that it'll probably happen this summer because that was the window that the uh, prosecutor in Georgia um, gave the press. But really, um, it's anyone's guess as to when this happens. And I think in some ways, um, you know, if if the January 6th charge comes first, and depending on how obviously strong the January 6th charges are, um, again, that might become one of the uh, lesser <laughs> legal worries for Donald Trump, if such a thing can be said to exist. Indeed. But one thing you can predict is when that does happen, we will definitely be back to you. But for now, we're going to leave it there. Uh, that was Joe Miller, legal correspondent for the Financial Times. Joe, thank you once again for joining us here on Newstalk. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk. Coming up, stay with us as we could have some good news for home seekers. We're going to examine the Land Development Agency's plans to pay private developers €2 billion Euro to build 5,000 new homes. That's coming up after this break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now for our final item today, there was lots and lots of news around housing this week. New figures from the CSO revealing that new built housing is increasing in cost. We also had those tax strategy papers uh, from the Department of Finance. We learned that there is a big discrepancy between what's happening here in Ireland um, and what's happening across the rest of Europe in terms of who can afford a home. But on the other side of all that, a big part of the government's solution on housing are the approved housing bodies and the Land Development Agency. So that's what we're going to focus on today. So to help me do that, I am joined now by Linda Daly of The Sunday Times. Linda, you're very welcome. Thanks, Mandy. How are you? Now, Linda, you've been writing recently about um, these two bodies, if you like, and one of the starting points for all of this is that the institutional money has started to withdraw from the property sector in Ireland. Um, so before we kick into what the solutions might be, I'm I'm definitely picking up a lot of this around the place that actually the supply of credit is a big issue for people who are trying to build properties. Can you just talk us through what's happening there? Yeah, I suppose so. Previously, um, over the last kind of, I suppose, maybe five more years, um, institutional investors had become a big player in the market, you know. So what would happen would be that property developers, when they were going to build homes, instead of selling them individually, as everybody knows, they were selling them to um, private institutions. Um, Now, with the kind of cost of the rising interest rates, um, just the uncertainty in, in the markets globally, those those private institutions have, in many respects, like withdrawn their money and from the market. They're not even so much withdrawn. I suppose developers would say they've put it on pause, you know. So, so the deals have have dried up basically. Mm. Um, and what about the other side of the funding then? Say the Irish banks are they lending still, or is it you know reflective that 
that market has kind of consolidated. We only have two big banks here now. Does, has, is that affecting where property developers are getting their money from? Yeah, and that's well, that's been going on for a number of years. And um, the private banks, the, the 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 banks like the stable, the banks, stable banks rather, sorry, like AIB and Bank of Ireland, they completely, but they weren't lending. Okay, so the developers needed to go um, elsewhere. They needed to go into international um, lenders. So um, they they have not been able to get a lot of money from AIB now. ISAF, the the government's um, state bank, that has stepped in. In some cases as well, so so they will have kind of supported the likes of Ardstone and Dorkin Homes, and um, just by lending the money just to get development started. Mm. But do you think, Linda, having looked at this sector, that that's a big part of why the supply isn't coming um, along as quickly as maybe the government had hoped? Um, yeah, I, I do think you know. I mean, lend, uh, the developers would say that you know the, sometimes the, the money wasn't there, but there are lots of reasons, you know. I mean, somebody described it to me once as a big wheel, and because everything stopped, that big wheel stopped, mm. and now you're trying to get this big, big wheel started again. So it's just really been a slow process in between getting you know, planning permissions um, across the line, um, and getting the finance, getting the land, getting just everything. It's just been very slow to kind of ramp up again. And when the Tornister said this week that a large amount of the delays is about capacity, is that what they're talking about, that matrix of difficult issues to deal with? Yes, um, capacity and uh, I suppose as well um, the number of people to build the homes. Um, like, and that's a huge issue. And anybody, and even when I was speaking to the approved housing bodies um, last week, I mean, they said that they're struggling and they see the developers and contractors they're working with struggling to get, you know, builders, electricians, plumbers, you know, there just isn't enough mm. staff available, you know, to, yeah. to do. N- no, th- and thank you for that. Um, just turning then to the Land Development Agency um, and talking about what they've started to try and do, just give give us all a reminder who the Land Development Agency are and what they're designed to do for the government and by extension for the people of Ireland. Okay, yeah, so the Land Development Agency were set up, I think, around 2018. Um, the government set them up. Now, at the time when they were set up, um, you know, to they were set up to kind of maybe cobble bits of land together and oversee development. Um, th- there was kind of some criticism that the government didn't just set up a house-building agency, that Land Development Agency weren't that. Um, now, last week, they announced, and it kind of went a bit under the radar, but um, they, I, I came across there was a, a, a kind of prior information notice and um, that the LDA are going to spend $2 billion plus VAT to build 5,000 homes, and they're going to give that money to developers to, to build the homes. Mm. Now, prior, previously, what would happen is a developer might build a home and the Land Development Agency would come in under Project Tusic and buy after the development had been built. Um, I don't think that has happened actually yet. But what's going to happen now is the develop the land development agency will forward fund the developments. So they will meet with developers. They're going to set up a panel, and they're going to maybe maybe ten or more um, developers will be on that panel. They'll say, "Right, you have this land. We will help you get the, the land ready. Um, get all that. We will fund it, and then as you build, we will give you money in stages." Mm. Um, it's, and the plan is to build 5,000 homes over four years. Well, it is, as you say, quite a sizable fund that they're talking about, but it also does signal a little bit of a departure from their original remit, if you like. So putting the money in, effectively starting a tendering process, and then they're 
more state involvement through the finance and the operational side of things? Do you think they'll help them kind of progress through the system in a quicker way, perhaps? Is that what the the aim of this is, to speed everything up ultimately? Yeah, and I suppose to give developers who now no longer have, well, I mean, at the moment don't have that private investment, mm. then they will have certainty. That, so they'll say, well, I'll be able to afford to build those homes because I'll have the finance and then I'll know that at the end I'll be selling them to the, the government. Or, you know, they could co-fund them. So that could be an option um, where they ha- bring in an investor. They say, look, we have this at the end, so you can help us build it as well. So, I mean, it's just it's just it's another element of finance that developers get. So I suppose it helps both. It helps the, the, the sector and, um, you know, the building sector without doubt. You know, some people could complain and say, oh, the developers are getting money. But um, I just think what's needed and it means that there'll be an extra 5,000 homes and if if they stick to their plan to build them within four years I mean that would be a sizable amount of property coming onto the market for people to rent or buy. Yeah and the Land Development Agency they need all the help they can get as well because looking at their targets you might just take us through them what were their original what was their original aim in terms of delivery for for, for their um, housing programme? Yeah, I mean, so so when they were set up, I mean, they did. I mean, okay, so the the deadline for these five thousand homes is now is to to twenty twenty eight, and originally, I mean, that should have been twenty twenty six. So they've been set up. It's it's kind of taken them a, a long time. They've identified places in Dundrum Mental Hospital, um, in in Dunor Avenue in Dublin, then also in Cork and 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 a place in Galway. So they, they've kind of just been establishing and cobbling these developments together, but nothing has been built yet. So mm. um, we should see homes coming on stream in Changana, in Shankill and in Dublin shortly. Um, they're on site there. But yeah, I mean, it, it's. I suppose that they haven't really kind of delivered what people were hoping they would deliver as quickly as, as people thought they would. Yeah, and then just from a, a wider perspective, I, I suppose, do you think that this will be perceived as kind of a, a change in government direction uh, that it's now, you know, it's now open to teaming up with developers in a way that it hasn't been since the crash, if you like? I know it's one remove, but it is a it's an important it's a it's an important step change, I think. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I suppose really as well, it used to be kind of presented that it was AHBs or developers or it was the Land Avail- the Development Agency or developers. Um, and, and that's kind of really passed. And you can even see it from how Sinn Féin are approaching the subject. They know, the AHB knows, AHBs know, and the Land Development Agency know that developers are going to play an important role. Now, I think one of the reasons for that is we've seen in, in recent times... Um, Contractors have withdrawn from from uh, deals. Um, they, you know, they whether that like South Dublin County Council had a couple of developments, and the contractors there form walked away when materials prices got too high. Um, whereas developers will take on some of the risk. Mm. I think that's the benefit now because, um, yeah, so contractors really are a bit more riskier investment, whereas developers will take on some of the risk. And um, we can kind of be more certain then that the, the, the developments will be built. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson and I'm chatting to Linda Daly of the Sunday Times about the property market. Linda, you mentioned the AHBs there. These are, of course, the approved housing bodies. Can you just um, 
remind us again what these AHBs are designed to do and just give us an overview of what the landscape is like, how many are there, etc. Yes, yeah, so there's about 450 across the country. Um, there, the um, approved housing body regulatory authority was set up a couple of years ago just to kind of keep an eye on, you know, how many there are, what they do, and to regulate them. Um, now, not all of those will, not all of those 450 will build new homes. Okay, so you know, some of them might have been set up by a priest years ago, or. Um, a, a wealthy a couple who, or you know, wealthy benefactor who died and said, "Look, I want to build these homes on my land," and they left money, and and so they're they're kind of you know maintained, and they're still a list of um, AHBs. But the biggest ones are the likes of Circle, Respond to a Clude, and they not only kind of maintain stock and they have places where they manage, but they also build new homes. And really, that's the focus um, from the government at the moment, because back in January, um, when Leo Radker met them, you know, he kind of said, look, we need you to build more homes. And, and, and the AHBs are saying, yes, happy days, but we need help to do that. Mm. Now, we actually we had um, one of the CEOs from one of those approved housing bodies in with us a couple of months ago, and we were talking about the sheer number of appro- approved housing bodies that there are. 450 seems an incredible amount and as you say they're very diverse in terms of what portfolios they handle but what are they at at the moment and and you were writing recently that they might become the hero of this scenario what what role do you think that they can play going forward Yeah so I mean if you look right so we've just been talking about the LDA and they want to build 5000 homes over the next 4 years and um, AHBs the the top 6 one the biggest 6 AHBs want to build 12000 homes mm. So, I mean, over the next two years, so that's, you know, a huge amount um, of properties come on, which would be available mostly around cost rental and some affordable housing as well. But actually, most AHBs do hold on to their stocks. That's rental properties coming on onto the market. Um, I mean, there are arguments that there are too many AHBs, but there are kind of some indications, you know, like just say you might have an AHB, which like, they all have marketing departments or they, you know, they replicate what each other do. Mm. But there is kind of talk that there might be some consolidation in the market so that there won't be uh, 450 going forward. But I do think that they will have a really important role in in increasing the number of homes available for people. Yeah, but I just want to refer to other figures that were released by the Department of Finance this week also, which suggested that, you know, in terms of our targets, the government are nowhere near achieving what they had set out to do, which is political dynamite for them as they head into local election campaigns and possibly a general election campaign next year. Um. Even those figures, 12,000 that you mentioned from the approved housing bodies or 5,000 from the Land Development Agency, like they're nowhere near where we need to be to solve the crisis of housing, um, in my view anyway. But what what are the politicians saying now? Like, do you think that they're going to stick to these targets or do you see any kind of reconstruction, if you forgive the pun, of how they're going to start dealing with this to a greater degree by delivering more houses? Yeah, I mean, the Department of Finance, there are figures mentioned about 50,000 homes um, in an article during the week um, that are needed annually. And I suppose where that figure comes from is that, you know, we've had these targets for the last five years and they haven't been met. So they should, you know, go higher and higher. I mean, I don't know. I just don't. They could raise the targets, but whether those raised targets will be met is another thing. 
Um, you know, as as we've previously said, there aren't the people there to build them. I mean, we're not meeting the you know the the figures of of what was built last year is quite low. You know, if you look at the AHBs, it was four thousand four hundred and seventy nine homes. So, I mean, if you're going to ramp up, you know, the question would be who's going to be there to to build the homes if you do increase your targets. I mean, I think these targets are you know they can be met the ones that have been set you know, the AHBs, the LDA, and then the private developer, developers are building as well, um, continuing to build. So I think, you know, targets have to be realistic. We can throw out, you know, mad figures, but whether they'll be met is another thing. Absolutely. Well, Linda, thank you very much for taking the time to give us those insights today. It's, it's just good to look at the other side of it with the Land Development Agency and the approved housing bodies as well. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That was Linda Daly from the Sunday Times. Linda, thank you very much. Now, you're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. In China, consumer inflation rates uh, were flat in June and it's fueling concerns about the risk of China's economy going into deflation. There's speculation about a potential economic stimulus happening there right now. And what could this mean if it happens for the wider economy? And indeed, how likely is it? Well, I'm joined now by James Major, who is a China economy editor at Bloomberg. James, you're very welcome to News Talk. How are you? Now, James, just before we get into what's happening at the moment, how would you categorise uh, China's economy as it sits in July 2023? Um, China's economy really isn't in a good place right now. Um, you know, if you look at the West, if you look at countries in Europe uh, or the US, uh, you're, you know, inflation is coming down, but they've obviously had a massive spike of inflation in the last year or so, which has really damaged consumer spending. Here in China, it's been very, very different. What we've had here was last year we had huge COVID lockdowns. Uh, obviously, people read about Shanghai and the lockdowns there that went on for months. And then that really damaged the economy last year. And by some measures, you know, the economy actually here actually was in recession last month, although the official data doesn't show that. And then this year, you've everyone was expecting they would this big boom as as the COVID restrictions ended. You know, consumers would go out and spend. They would go traveling. They would go shopping and there would be this massive spike in consumption. And that kind of happened for the first few months and then that just disappeared. And everyone's being very, very cautious about spending. And then you're also seeing a big slump in exports to other countries. And so you're seeing weak domestic consumption and you're also seeing weak demand from overseas. And those two things, plus a housing crisis, which has been going on now for a couple of years, have completely undermined sort of any economic activity and you're seeing really a slowdown across the economy. Mm. And is that what is driving this speculation about a stimulus going into the economy now? How likely do you think that is to happen? That's right. So the, the talk about stimulus now is is how do we stop housing prices from falling? How do we boost housing demand? Uh, how do we get people back into the housing market and buying houses again? How do we get people spending and shopping? How do we get consumers to be more confident about uh, about their prospects and about going out and actually buying things? And so the, 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 the discussion now about stimulus is what is the government going to do to, to try and achieve those things and how large is that going to be? Yeah, and, and what when it comes to that in China, what is what are the options that are open to the the government there? I think that they've in, uh, reduced interest rates recently, but what other tools can they use to try and stimulate the economy? Well, like like in in other countries, interest rate cuts are one tool the government has, and as you said, they they just cut rates recently by by only about ten basis points, so zero point one percent. 
and there may there is the expectation that they will use something similar to that um, to try and encourage people to borrow and to try and make it easier for banks to lend. Um, the problem with that is that there is you know China had a massive housing bubble, uh, and that has slowly been deflating over the last few years. Um, and the government really doesn't want to inflate that again. They don't want people to go out and speculate on, on houses by borrowing a lot of money and going out and, and, and buying houses that they don't need. So while interest rate cuts could stimulate housing demand, if it, if it stimulates it too much, you know, the, things will go the way that the government doesn't want to do. So the, the, the options for that are you know, a little bit limited. And, and we've seen the government being red, very reticent to actually use that tool over the last few years, even when the economy hasn't been looking so good. Mm. Some other things that they have done have been tax cuts for electric vehicles or subsidies for electric vehicles. So, uh, I mean, Chinese electric cars now are flooding the world and they're, you know, they're quite popular in Europe, uh, according to some stories I've read. But uh, it looks like about, I think about half of the current cars that are being sold right now in China are electric vehicles. And one of the reasons for that is because there are tax breaks and there are subsidies that people are getting to purchase these. And so that's another subsidy tool that the government is using. And then there are things like, you know, cuts on you know, mortgage requirements, you know, how much, what percentage of the house's value do you have to put down as a down payment, things like this, again, to try and boost demand for in the housing sector. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston and I'm speaking to James Mager, who is the China Economy Editor at Bloomberg. James, just picking up on that um issue you mentioned a little earlier about the the housing market. Um, last year, we heard an awful lot of talk about the issue of debt, particularly in the property market. What, what is happening there now? I mean, there was sort of talk at the time that this was going to end up like the US in 2008, 2009, where the entire thing could collapse. Um, has that stabilised? The, the government, I think, has done a reasonable job of sort of letting the air out of the overinflated property market without causing collapse. Mm. Uh, I, and I, I don't think a US-style housing market collapse was ever on the books, mm. um, because partly because you know, in the US you had bank lenders that just, yeah, they just failed, basically. They went bankrupt. And um, that's never going to happen here, partly because most of the banks are owned by the government. And the government isn't going to let large chunks of itself fail they're always going to be bailed out in some form or another. So I don't think a, a sort of that kind of massive financial system collapse was ever on the books. But there has been uh, a number of housing developers, people, you know, builders, companies that build houses that have gone bankrupt, that have defaulted on their loans, that mm. are that stopped building the houses that they, they were contracted to build. And there, so there has been real problems in the housing sector as a whole. Um, but we haven't seen the overall systemic-wide collapse that you saw in other countries like Spain or, or the US. Mm. The problem, though, is that because so many housing developers stopped building houses that they contracted to build that they'd actually sold, people stopped buying, people stopped paying their mortgages, and then new home buyers saw that and they thought logically, "Why would I buy a home if I'm, there's no guarantee I'm going to get a home?" Why would I invest in a prop in a property if there's no guarantee the price is going to rise? So, you know, so while there hasn't been a systemic collapse of the housing market or construction or the economy as a whole, mm. it has completely destroyed confidence in from consumers in buying houses. So now there's just very very little demand for new houses. So you have all these you have the capacity to build millions and millions and tens of millions of houses a year, but there isn't enough people buying them. So these property developers are in a lot of trouble in that. They have to keep paying 
for you know for construction they have to keep they have to keep building the houses they're contracted to but they're not getting new money coming in from new yeah, home very, so there's still a lot of issues very interesting affecting the supply side now and maybe storing up problems uh for them in future years as we're experiencing here now when you kind of stop that infrastructural development there's always a price to pay further down the line james um china's huge as we know um are there particular i'm just going back to the stimulus piece for for a second it's a huge country. Are there particular regions um, that require more stimulus and are there sectors who need some kind of impetus or intervention from the government in particular? I mean, the, the, if when you think people think about China, obviously from other countries, it seems very monolithic. But when you really drill, drill, drill down into it, the, the economy of somewhere like Guizhou, which is in central southwestern China, is incredibly different to the economy of somewhere like Shanghai, which everyone has heard of, or Beijing. And so the eastern seaboard parts of the country, you know, like places like Shanghai or Guangzhou, Shenzhen, um, you know, these are massive industrialized first world level you know, developed cities or, or provinces, which are very wealthy. And the economy in those places, while not, you know, growing amazingly well, and mm. definitely not growing at the rates it was growing 10 years ago, isn't facing the same problems that places like Guizhou or central China, or Western China are facing. Uh, these are always much poorer. They're always much less developed in the Eastern seaboard uh, areas of the country. And so now these poorer places that took on a bunch of debt over the last 10 years to pay for infrastructure, to pay for airports, to pay for freeways and, and for high-speed rail and these kind of things. These are really the places that are facing real debt repayment problems now. I was just in Guizhou uh, in a city called uh, Zuni, and there was a, a massive unfinished freeway through the middle of the city. There was just housing developments that were half done and had been abandoned. There was tourist spots that were abandoned and, and had never been finished. Um, there were, you know, The city is, has three airports around it, it's a city of six million people that has three airports, uh, none of which seem to be particularly busy. So you have this massive inf- investment that went into these places because they were poor and they needed an infrastructure. And now those are the places which can't afford to pay for that mm. that spending. And those are the places that are really facing this massive uh, economic hit now. And and so, James, like traditionally, the, the state intervention in China has been a huge part of their day to day business and and their recovery when when required. Do you see that they they will do that on this occasion for regions like that? Or do you think they'll lean more on the entrepreneurial side of things? I think for for working out the debt problems, um, they'll have to rely on the state sector. Mm. Uh, a lot of these a lot of these bonds that they've sold, a lot of the loans that have been made have been made by state owned banks. So the government is basically in a sense lending to itself. You know, you have a state owned bank that lends money to a state-owned enterprise or a, or a state-owned company that builds a freeway. And if the freeway company can't pay the money back, the state the state is on the hook for that money. And so eventually the, the, you, the government, in a sense, can work it out itself because it's all on, you know, on the unified balance sheet. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more, it's a lot more complicated than that, but the state is going to have to bail itself out and so, you know, eventually in these kinds of situations. And, and obviously, they're going to take a loss. Um, but you know, this isn't going to work its way through the bankruptcy courts in a, the way it would in, in, a, in a Western country. Mm. The problem, I think, really is that these companies also have debts to, to individuals. They have debts to small companies. You know, if you're a freeway construction company and you get bailed out by the local government, you're doing okay. But the companies that were renting you, con- you know, construction equipment like cranes or excavators or the workers who built the freeway who haven't been paid their wages for months, mm. they don't get a bailout. 
And so it's the incredibly damaging yeah, the to the local economy. The knock-on effects are... Are exactly. very severe, yeah, and in those regions in particular, which depend on that type of labour. Just speaking of labour, um, I noticed that the unemployment figures for sixteen, I think, to twenty-four year olds is over twenty percent, which is extraordinarily high. What what do you put that down to? The the data is not great on unemployment in China, um, so I, I take those numbers with a grain of salt. Um, it's based on a survey of some cities, and I don't know how representative it is. But I definitely do think that young people are more unemployed than you know. The overall unemployment rate is about five percent, mm. and so I think young people are much are facing much more unemployment pressures. Whether it's twenty percent, whether it's higher, whether it's low, we, we just don't know. But I think that one of the reasons for, or the reasons behind that that high youth unemployment, is this slowdown. In, in the economy that's happened in the last year, a lot of those people would have been working normally in the service sector and restaurants uh, as delivery guys, for example, and that, that activity has really dropped off. So those people can't, can't find work. Uh, there's also a big, there was a big crackdown on the tech sector um, and a lot of younger people would have been going into work in the tech sector, which is now long, not longer available. So yeah, there is a big problem in people coming out of school, coming out of university and not being able to find jobs and also not being able to find good jobs yeah, there is. Yeah, the, the, you go to university, and all you can find is a you know is a jo- delivery job. It's a very disappointing experience. The high quality um, jobs may not be available to them in the way that they they were in the past. So I just want to finish up with your assessment on whether or not there will be um, a stimulus package for China. And I also, and I know this is a very broad question, but just to give us a sense of why the Chinese economy um, and what happens to it at this particular juncture is so important for the rest of us, for the rest of the world. It's not just about China, obviously. It has huge implications on the geopolitical economic stage. I think there will there will be more stimulus um how how substantial that is going to be and how really effective that is going to be at fixing the problems the economy is facing i think is another question i you know i think if they just come in and and cut a few more cut a few percentage points off of mortgage rates or if they just come in and lower the mortgage you yeah. know the, the down payment you have to put on a house to buy a house i, I don't think it's going to be effective at really solving the, the broader problems that the economy is facing which is the lack of confidence for people to spend and invest. People just don't see that there's a real future. Uh, the prices are going to rise and they, you know, they're going to get a good return on an investment. So they're not willing to invest. They're, right now they're in a savings mode because they're worried about the future. So I don't think that a, a, like a little stimulus package, which is what's being indicated right now, is really going to affect that. And I think with people, you know, for, for the effect of, on, the, on the rest of the world, I think there are two, two, two main channels that people should think about. The first is obviously China is, a, is the world's second largest economy. It buys massive amounts of things from all over the world. So, you know, I can get, is it Kerrygold? butter yeah um that's available at my local supermarket if chinese it's quite expensive for a chinese consumer but it's, it's quite it, expensive know, it's, for it's an irish consumer james <laughs> yeah but i mean it, if if uh, if if the economy is not doing so well then the middle class in china is going to buy less of those products so ex- exports from ireland will go down to china mm. exports from europe exports from america all of these things are slumping right now china is buying less and less from the rest of the world because it basically doesn't have the demand for iron ore from Australia, from coal from Australia, for butter or other products from Europe. So you'll see a definite slump in you know, exports from, from where you are to China. And the second thing that is going to change is that you know, the, 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 the relative power that China has vis-a-vis America and the rest of the world is also going to change. If China slows down a lot for a number of years and other countries grow over that same period of time, 
the the you know the expectation that China is going to surpass the US's the size of the US economy in a few years that that gets postponed and maybe that never happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do we? You know, what is how is China going to? What is China's role going to be in the world if it never becomes the world's largest economy? How are the Chinese going to think about that? How is the US going to think about that? What does that change the balance of power in Asia? All those are real, really important questions that will be affected by what happens this year and next year in the economy here. Well, no doubt um, it, it does have a lot of implications for all of us. Um, and it was fascinating to get your insights into what's happening there at the moment. So thank you for your time. That was James Mager of uh, Bloomberg. He is the China Economy Editor. James, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for your time. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. I'm grateful, as always, to all of my guests today for their time and their insights. And also my thanks to the producer of Taking Stock, John Farty, with Simon Keane and Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is coming up next with Future Proof. And then it's On the Record with Emmett Oliver. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.